Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. This is going to be a bit of a personal chat, maybe even an emotional one, but uh, this is going out to the bulge of my listenership that sits in the uh, you know mid-20s to mid-30s range, at the tail end of uh, the uh, millennials, the younger generation. I know that a lot of you are struggling in this area. It's sort of been characterized as a failure to launch like this, just some fuel that's missing in the base of the spine, particularly the young men, to get them out of the house and into the world. I actually think it's more like there's no place to land, there's no place to go. And I wanted to talk about some of the reasons why for that. When you don't have an understanding of the shape of your life, it's very hard to get traction and ambition going forward. Societies that wrong you and and you have been very, very wronged by your society, my friends. Societies that wrong you, particularly if they do it for political and economic gain, that sacrifice you. In the ancient Aztec tradition, sacrifice you on the god altars of collectivism and political power. Societies that have wronged you have a very great incentive to somehow convince you that it is your deficiency that has caused the problems in your life. There's just something wrong with you. Why don't you just do what your parents did? Why don't you just do what your grandparents did? You're a bunch of whiners, blah, blah, blah. Now, I have um, occasionally found myself frustrated at the younger generation, but I've learned better, and I wanted to pass along the information with an apology as well to to, um, hopefully give you some understanding of where you are and why you are. So the first question is, where are you? Well, a lot of you feel kind of unstable, right? So more than 25% of college students have a diagnosable mental disorder and have been treated over the uh, past uh, year. Uh, Now, I know that mental disorders have kind of expanded, uh, proliferated like an algae in a warm sunlit pond, but uh, nonetheless, that does seem to be uh, an increase. Uh, recently, uh, 61% of over a 1,000 college students, um, this is in the fall of 2014, they said, well, they felt overwhelming anxiety over the last year. And 35.5% said they felt so depressed that it was difficult to function. And mental health problems, this uh, stuff doesn't actually just start in college. In college, according to the magazine Psychology Today, Quote, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Remember the 1950s? All was told to you by Marxists and socialists at some terrible, oppressive time. But it's, uh, it had its upsides um, in terms of mental health. So generalized anxiety disorders and major depressions are five to eight times now what they were in the 1950s. Since the 1950s, the suicide rate for young people, this is 15 to 24, has more than doubled, and for children under age 15, has quadrupled, gone up four times. And this has a lot to do with decisions that were made in the 1960s and the 1970s, and then, of course, for your childhoods, right, in the um, the 80s and the 90s. And this is stuff that you really, really need to get a hold of because social decisions, particularly those that are implemented at the political level, 
they don't just change politics. They don't just change laws. They fundamentally change human beings. They rewire your hormonal system. They rewire your biological system. They rewire your stress response system. They rewire your brain. Um, We are very susceptible to environmental influences. And when social policies lead to huge changes in how children are raised in particular, there are enormous changes and challenges that uh, young people have to overcome, which isn't really talked about that much for reasons we'll get into. So let's start a little bit with play. Now, play is one of these things that is really underappreciated when it comes to childhood development. You know, the average child these days gets about the same amount of time, or gets actually less time outdoors than your average high-security prisoner in jail. Uh, It really is astonishing. Declines in opportunity to play outdoors, and in particular, you know, unstructured play. Play where there's no adult. Uh, You have to figure out your own rules. You have to negotiate and all of that. This decline in unstructured outdoor play has been accompanied in children and youth by a decline in empathy and also a rise in narcissism, right? So, you know, empathy, can you see from another person's point of view, experience what that person experiences? That's not the same as sympathy. Sympathy is when you also appreciate and prefer it. Like if you're being followed by some creep on a street, empathy would be, well, I think he's got some ill intent uh, to me. Uh, and that would be empathy. Like you're in the mind of the other person. Why would he be following me so close? Why is he, you know, breathing? <laughs> right. So um, empathy can be a self-protection against immorality or evil. Sympathy is when you have empathy plus you approve of what you're um, empathizing with. Now, narcissism, of course, re- refers to this inflated self-regard that, you know, special snowflake and wonderful um, without evidence, without um, proof. And this, is, um, this high self-regard is coupled with a lack of concern for others and an inability to connect emotionally with others. And when you are uh, trained or raised into narcissistic tendencies, then you lose, and really you have robbed from you, one of the most important, if not the most important virtue, which is humility, which is to be ability to say, I don't know, um, but I need to go and learn. This is all very new, in particular age segregation, which we'll get to in a second. But a bunch of anthropologists were asked, you know, when they observed cultures, like kind of cultures that we all evolved from, which is, you know, hunter-gatherer societies of about 25 people or so. And they, anthropologists were asked, how much time did children in the culture you observed have for play? And every single one of the anthropologists said, oh, the kids, they're free to play almost all their waking hours from the age of about four, right? That's when you're considered to be old enough to wander off away from adults, you know, with an age-mixed group of other kids, into their mid-teenage or even late teenage years, when you were kind of expected to take on some adult responsibilities. And, and most kids would at that point, you know, having outgrown play. So this question of play is really, really important. Um, Empathy grows in children, often on a combination of unstructured outdoor play, uh, where the kids have to negotiate and gather and figure out the rules and ostracize kids who don't complain. It's an environment where a temper tantrum won't work with you. Uh, It'll work with your parents if your parents are kind of weak-willed and appeasement-minded, but temper tantrums don't work in peer groups, which is one of the ways in which peer groups can help you mature 
if it's in an unstructured environment. In other words, if it's a voluntary gathering, I don't mean jammed into schools, government schools, or jammed into um, daycares and so on, if it's a voluntary gathering. And this um, lack of play uh, is a big, big problem. And um, one of the golden ages of uh, play uh, for children was sort of the first half of the 20th century when the need for child labor had diminished. But all of this massive overscheduling of kids' time and space, and, uh, along with this rampant paranoia about the environment, like, oh, it's dangerous out there, even though crime rates have technically gone down, uh, in, well, except for the Ferguson effect in some U.S. cities, but crime rates have gone down. But um, parents, particularly moms, need to keep you close, need to keep you clinging on to the aprons and almost, in a sense, prefer that you get addicted to video games indoors rather than going out into the big scary outdoors where apparently uh, endless rows of windowless fans are off to take you off to spirit cooking uh, gatherings, which, you know, I'm sure in certain places that may be a case. The lack of play in China is actually kind of uh, interesting. Um, very, very structured, very scheduled, and very sort of consume and regurgitate kind of schooling. And uh, in China, there's a term called gaofantineng, meaning high scores, but low ability. Because, you know, kids, they spend their time studying and studying and studying, and they don't have as much opportunity to develop, you know, voluntary social skills, physical skills, take initiative, be creative, uh, very little opportunity to play. Because... Uh, voluntary, unstructured time leads to boredom. Boredom leads to creativity. So uh, this question of play is really, really important. And I think what's happened is indoor activities have become more enjoyable with you know tablets and video game systems and computers and so on. But also outdoor activities with other kids have become less enjoyable. And I think it's these two things that have made such a big swing over the past couple of uh, decades. So there is uh, a number of other things I think that are important when it comes to understanding what's happened to childhood and what's happened to your emotional systems. The rise of single fatherhood, I've talked about it uh, in this show before. We've got a whole presentation called The Truth About Single Moms, which you should check out. But did you know that if you are a boy and you grow up without a father, you end up with um, higher levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and lower levels of testosterone. And this is what I mean when I say when there are political decisions that are made that fundamentally restructure family systems, it reprograms you at a biological level. Level. So as adults, boys who'd grown up, grown up without fathers had higher cortisol levels and lower testosterone levels than their father-present peers, which means you know testosterone is one of these you know healthy male hormones that gives you a man, gives you some confidence, some aggression, some assertiveness, and so on. So that's important as well. And I know, I mean, I've read some of these things that there are plastics, uh, chemicals in plastics that may be having an effect on um, uh, male hormones and so on. I don't know about that. But uh, for sure, father absence uh, produces, um, in a sense, emasculated boys, boys with lower testosterone than the boys who grow up with fathers. And that is a big challenge because I kind of get the feeling in society, well, in Europe and uh, in particular testosterone, is going to be a little bit needed. So, you know, go, go get it checked out. Get a blood test for it. When it comes to creative thinking, this is uh, really, really doing badly uh, among kids these days. Uh, this is from an article called The Creativity Crisis, and the links to all of this will be below. 
this is published in 2011. Uh, quote, children have become less emotionally expressive, less energetic, less talkative and verbally expressive, less humorous, less imaginative, less unconventional, less lively and passionate, less perceptive, less apt to connect seemingly irrelevant things, less synthesizing, and less likely to see things from a different angle. And what is the scope? Well, between 1984 and 2008, the average elaboration score for a test on creativity uh, for every grade from kindergarten onwards fell by more than one standard deviation. A collapse, I would say. So what this means is that more than 85% of the children in 2008 scored lower on this test of creativity than the average child in 1984. And that is uh, catastrophic. And so if you lack verbal skills, if you lack negotiation skills, then it becomes more difficult to go out and play in an unstructured environment. And, and, and it has to be voluntary. This is, this is the key. It has to be voluntary. How do you end up negotiating? Well, if you are in some organized pre-planned activity as a child, let's say you are put into uh, gymnastics or some, something like that. Well, that's structured. There's not really any negotiation. You, you go and you do your gymnastics and you do your best. And maybe there's some negotiation with your parents, which is different from negotiation with your peers about how often you practice and so on. But it is not a voluntary environment. And the reason why play is so important in helping kids develop social skills is that it's voluntary, which means that any player, any participant in the game is always free to quit. And, and if they're not satisfied, if they're not happy, they will quit. Now, I had a rough childhood in many, many ways, but there were some pluses, which I don't know how to, I don't know how to evaluate, given the negatives. But some of the pluses were no money. No money meant, and my friends also had uh, no money. I was actually, just yesterday, I was reading an article on how like a third of malls may face closure in America over the next couple of years. And it reminded me of the mall that I spent a lot of time in. There's that great tagline from the movie Mall Rats. They're not there to work. They're not there to shop. They're just there. Now, I was never one of those kids uh, in particular, but um, I had jobs in the mall. Uh, I worked at a hardware store in the mall. I worked at a restaurant in the mall. I worked cleaning offices uh, at the mall, like a, a night cleaner. And uh, I was there uh, a lot. And um, I just went and checked. It was torn down in 2006, like 11 years ago. It was just torn down. And I found someone's pictures at the mall. I don't know. If you're young, you won't get this kind of welling of Dickensian sentimentality about the things of your youth. But um, it's a funny thing to think that that entire space that inhabits significant portions of my mental maps, my mental histories, my geographical positioning in the past, it's just gone. Big trucks came in and big claws came in and pulled everything down. And uh, there was pictures there and I was like, I was like right back there. I was right there back there with my, my two friends. We would go and uh, pick up uh, what were little Icy Squares chocolates for 10 cents a piece. Oh, and I worked at a convenience store as well. Long gone. And um, I used to go with my mom to get uh, dinners sometimes uh, at uh, 
a restaurant where I remember she she liked the fish once and she asked the cook to come out and this guy came out kind of swarthy and greasy, had no clue why he'd probably never been praised before in his life for the things that he'd made. But um, just uh, things that were there that are now gone. I remember sitting in that very restaurant with my mom and she would ask me what I thought the future would hold. I remember laying out all the predictions of everything I thought that would happen in the future. Actually, some of them did come true, but it's a funny thing to think about just the excavation of history that occurs. I'm not saying that life should stand still. Of course it shouldn't. It shouldn't. I mean, the progress has to be made and things change and so on. But um, even the moral environment tends to diminish uh, over time, tends to have diminished over time. But there was all this voluntarism that occurred. We'd meet someplace, we'd go someplace, um, pick up games were very, very important. Pick up uh, games of um, soccer, uh, football, uh, we played. Uh, a lot of baseball, uh, particularly in the summer. And it, it was a big, wide range of abilities. Um, I was pretty good. I've I been, always been pretty good at uh, sports. I can play just about anything. Not to massive degrees of competency, but uh, I can play just about everything pretty well. But there were kids who weren't that great. And we didn't want to say, no, you can't play. Right? No. I mean, there were kids... I mean, the level of physical coordination was so insane. Um, it was like somebody tied a, a puppet to a tree in a high storm and they're just, you know, kind of dangling and yangling about. And uh, I remember some kids, um, oh, there was one guy who was really, he was, he was bad all around. It was dangerous to go in in a soccer game with him because he had legs that were kind of blur and scythe like a blades of a combine harvester and you were lucky to come out without a, horrible ding on your shin if you went in it wasn't because he was being malevolent he was just kind of uncoordinated and uh he was also known for um uh, fly balls hitting him on the head and once he had a little divot on the top of his head because it hit the metal part on the top of his baseball cap and but but we would play and, and no one would say no you can't play because you know we would just try and figure out how to make the teams roughly even or not and you know like if you were the pitcher if you were pitching to that guy, you'd pitch more gently because otherwise you'd kind of be perceived as a bit of a jerk. Like, okay, yeah, you're better at sports than he is. We kind of know that, but, you know, let him have his fun. Um, and this was not um, a pity party or anything like that. It was just kind of a, a recognition. Now I'm a good hitter, and so I got the you know greasy Vaseline-soaked cannonballs uh, coming at me. Um, and uh, actually, I, I preferred that. <laughs> Because, you know, you throw something soft to me, and if you're good, it's kind of insulting, right? And so when it came to all of these pickup games, we had to arrange where to, and there were never any adults around. You had to arrange where to meet, had to divvy up your teams, had to try and make it fun for everyone, had to not be too sucky, right? Like, I mean, you could get into your arguments, but you, you know, if you thought something was in or out or whatever, but you couldn't get into your arguments to the point where you disrupt the game. And so people would fight individually and then other kids would come in if it got out of hand and would sort of talk people down. And all of this stuff, like thousands and thousands of hours of that. And verbal stuff as well. You know, um, I've mentioned this before on the show, but uh, when I was in my early teens, I played Dungeons and Dragons a lot. Why? Because we're broke. <laughs> because you can lay out some money. Like I had, as I said, three jobs at one point. And you lay out some money for, you know, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Fiend Folio, the Monster Manual, and, and um, the Player's Handbook and so on. And you lay out, you know, 30 or 40 bucks, I guess, at the time. 
some dice, some figurines if you're really feeling daring. And you can play for thousands of hours. And you don't have to pay anymore. You can't, you know? I mean, it's... And so Dungeons & Dragons is a verbal game. It's kind of like gambling with imaginary battles, but it's a verbal game. And uh, when I was a dungeon master... I feel like I'm praising myself a lot. Hey, I have my weaknesses, but I'm a good storyteller. I was good at, you know, you create dungeons and then you run people through the dungeons and you play all these different characters. And I actually remember hiking with two friends when we were, I think, 14. We went off and hiked in um, Algonquin Park. And we were supposed to be gone for a long time. But uh, one of... One of... Ugh... One one of my friends was like, I don't need to boil any water. My constitution is... Re- oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, so we did... It's like we'd never seen a horror film in our life. Actually, I don't think I had, except for one vampire film I saw when I was seven that haunts me to this day. But um, yeah, we ended up splitting up. But I remember walking along and playing Dungeons & Dragons just verbally. You could, you know, I'm thinking of a number and you'd try and guess the number and that would be whether you hit or not. And just having these endless conversations. I also remember having a debate. Uh, one of my friends said that uh, infinity divided by infinity is infinity. And I asked him for an example, and he said that imagine infinitely long pipes in an infinite space. Uh, you could basically put an infinity of infinitely long pipes in an infinite space. And I said, well, that doesn't quite work because um, if you've got infinity in length but not in breadth, then that's not really infinity. And, you know, we had good debates. I can't believe the stuff we were doing when we were 14. This doesn't come out of nowhere, people. I'm promising you. I'm telling you. Um, and it's also, let me tell you just, I appreciate your patience. I think everyone has these kinds of stories. But these events that happened uh, decades ago for me now, um, I have resurrected them, and they shall live forever in this show. These things that passed by that otherwise would have died with us, uh, because I doubt my other friends are doing lots of chatting about these uh, these kinds of stories. But um, so all of this voluntary interactions that we had together um, were really important. I had a we had a bike gang, which sounds tougher than it was. Um, it was like the Adam Sandler car bikes of seven different colors, like because I couldn't afford to buy a bicycle. Uh, we would just look around garbage dumps and try and find bits of bicycles and put them together, which is is better for a kid than buying a bicycle. And it's kind of weird, right? It's better for a kid to not buy them a bicycle in many ways. They learn more about bicycles. They learn more about value. They, you know, I mean, I could disassemble and assemble a bike uh, like some blindfolded SAS gun with his favorite weapon <laughs> and uh, SAS guy with his favorite weapon. But um, I remember we spent an hour and a half out back of the Don Mills Mall one afternoon, my friends and I, trying to come up with the name for our bike gang. I honestly cannot remember the name that we came up with, but I really, really remember the process. And I remember just going garbage picking with friends because, again, we wanted cool stuff and we had uh, no money. And we just would chat and chat and chat and talk and talk and talk. Not all of it was negotiations, and I'm sure most of it was nonsense, but... Those kinds of verbal skills that you get, you know, people admire my verbal fluency. Some of it is genetic. I mean, I've got ancestors who are uh, on my mother's side. One of my ancestors was a famous poet in Germany and and won a prize for his poetry, a national prize for his poetry. And uh, on my father's side, I have uh, uh, William Molyneux, who was a friend of John Locke's, a best friend of John Locke's, the famous Enlightenment philosopher and... um, I have uh, a peculiar amalgam of 
historical genetic influences to produce uh, linguistic skills. But I also have massive amounts of training because I grew up very poor and prior to the significant invasion of electronics and female paranoia uh, about the environment. I mean, when I was a kid, like I grew up, actually, I just, I was thinking of doing a show on this. Oh my God, I'm in a rambly mood today. That's all right. But um, I, I actually, the other day, went to Google Maps to where I grew up in London. It's actually not that dissimilar. Uh, that's one of the things. They toasted them all of my early teenage years, but the um, place I grew up in uh, London is still aroundish. But um, it was a sort of an estate, which sounds like something out of Downton Abbey, but it wasn't. It was you know, very poor, very low rent, uh, very subsidized. We paid almost nothing in rent back in the day. This is in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I just, I remember from the age of eight for sure, because I was in boarding school from when I was six to eight, but I remember from the age of eight for sure, just going, just just leaving and going to find kids to play some game. And I remember, again, we would roam around uh, when I was a kid in England, it's about the age of eight or nine, we'd roam around garbage picking again. We'd find old prams and then we'd disassemble the pram wheels. Uh, it's a you know, baby carriage. And then we would get uh, wood. We'd make our own go-karts, which you could steer uh, and so on. And we'd make our own skateboards uh, and all that and just find ways to engage and entertain ourselves. <laughs> if you remember Legolas style, we came up with a bow, uh, bow and arrows and we would play um, bow and arrows. I remember accidentally shooting a friend of mine in the leg from a bridge. Anyway, okay. interesting times. But all of this unstructured play, no money, no adult supervision, just out roaming and roaming and roaming and, and coming up with things to do and negotiating with other kids, all of it language-based, all of it voluntary. I don't really think that exists very much anymore. And I think it's a shame. Uh, and I think it has given people less preparation for the intense negotiations that occur in society when you are um, an adult. So all of this voluntary play, all of this uh, unsupervised Roman in the Gloman kind of play was part of my uh, upbringing. And I, think I don't think it's that much in common anymore. And there was a lot of age mixing as well. Because, um, you know, when you're in school, you are age segregated, which is totally new in human history. Uh, and, and I mentioned some things which help promote empathy in children. One, of course, is unstructured play uh, outdoors. Uh, and the other is um, mixed ages, right? Mixed ages. And um, that has really diminished over time. So we had a lot of mixed ages um, when it came to playing when I was a kid. Uh, and that has uh, really vanished, I think, for a lot of, uh, a lot of kids. And um, I think that's a real shame. I remember uh, I went to, well, I say I went to, I was put in summer camp. Uh, very subsidized, and um, I quite enjoyed summer camp in, in many ways. But, you know, you've got to make new friends, and you've got to figure out new ways of being. I remember the first time I was in summer camp, I think I was 12 years old, and I had a broom handle. I had two broom handles, and uh, I um, wanted... Yeah, that's right. I was just checking my chronology with when it came out. Um, I wanted to play Star Wars lightsaber, hack at each other with the broom handles, with an older, some older kid went by and I asked him what to play. And he kind of sniffed at me and said, don't you think you're a little old to be playing that? 
okay, maybe he didn't sound like a gay Alec Guinness, but um, that's kind of how it pinged in my mind. And, you know, I stuttered and said, well, 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 you're never too old to have fun. Because <laughs> I was like Oscar Wilde with the comebacks back in the day. No, I really wasn't. But um, but that sort of set me thinking, am I, am I too old for this? Uh, am I... You know, it's not something my mom would ever say. Like, moms never say you're too old for this. Uh, it, that's a dad thing. And um, so uh, this kind of age mixing um, is important because you see the older kids negotiating. And you also, you know, the older kids, if they want the younger kids to play with, then they need to find ways to accommodate the younger kids, which teaches you empathy for that as well. Like, researchers have actually found a way, and this is pretty terrifying, but it's important to understand. Again, I'm trying to give you sort of a map or a shape of your life that might explain some of the things that are happening in it. Researchers have found this way to raise like monkeys and, and rats. And what they do is they give them every kind of social interaction except play. Except play. And what happens is when these animals, right, the rats and the monkeys, they're not allowed to play. And when they grow up, they're emotionally crippled when they test them as young adults. That's important. Play, this is something when I was at uh, theater school when I was younger. I had a movement teacher who, um, I had, there were some really good teachers there, but I had a movement teacher who one point said, um, remember to play like children play, very seriously. And uh, in, in the play box of this show, I've tried to remember that um, as I have in my life as a whole. So these rats and these monkeys that are... Uh, raised without play, when they're put into a new environment, you know, maybe a little alarming or whatever, what happens is they freeze in terror. And they don't overcome this paralyzing anxiety and explore this new area. Now, rats or monkeys that are raised being able to play, they can go out and they can explore. They're nervous and they're anxious, but they go out and they explore. But the animals that are raised without play, they panic and they're not able to overcome that panic and explore this new idea. Now, if you put, you know, rat or monkey raised with play in an area with some other rat or monkey, like a pier, um, normally the rats, they'll, you know, approach cautiously and end up being okay with each other. But the animals that are raised without play, they cower in fear or, or they lash out with like this wildly aggressive but actually ineffective physical aggression or both, you know, and sort of that. And you can see this, of course, you know, I'm to some degree describing some of the, you know, social justice warriors, the microaggression folks, uh, all of this stuff where they need their safe spaces, which look like daycares, which we'll get to in a sec. And so when looking at some of the challenges that younger people are facing in terms of mental health and stability and and all of that fear of the, the unknown and the other, well, the government's argument is, well, more school, let's get a more school. And that is, um, that is not the answer. Less school, more play. According to the research is the answer. So that sort of right, single motherhood, particularly its effects on boys and its effects on girls. Girls who are raised without a father end up entering puberty like a year or two before their peers. Uh, it, it changes your physiology. Your family environment changes your physiology from K-selected to R-selected. If you go from two parents to one parent. And for more on that, you should really check out one of my best presentations uh, called Gene Wars, G-E-N-E Wars, which is, I mean, will blow your mind and shape your world in very comprehensible ways. So if you're a millennial, right, 18 to 34-ish, likelihood is that you had two working parents. 
Now, why did you have two uh, working parents? Well, it's a big story. It's a, it's a big story. But basically, when women got the vote, they wanted security over liberty. They wanted support from the state more than they wanted property rights of their own. And so there are papers out there that about half the growth in state, uh, the massive expansion in states, was driven by female voting. Um, if you look at countries in Europe like Sweden, they, they survived for 800 years. And then within 10 to 15 years of women getting the vote, you have old age pensions, you have the drive towards socialized health care, uh, you have um, unemployment insurance, which, which, which is security for women if their man gets unemployed, and you have the welfare state. And um, then with the welfare state, you end up with migrants. Anyway, that's a whole other story, but um, I've gone into that before. And so women want all this stuff, and the politicians want to accommodate women, right? Uh, accommodating women, it's kind of how men pass along their genes, so we're kind of programmed that way. And it takes a fair amount of grit to not go that way. Uh, women are the sugar to our sweet tooths of social destruction sometimes. And... So they had giant uh, bills to, to pay, to pay for what women uh, wanted. And so from, from the left, and there was um, some funding that went into early feminism from the CIA. I mean, it's a very socially disruptive force. So from the left was put forward the idea that women should go into the workforce, that being a mom was degrading to the potential of women, and it was an idiot's job. And if you were a real feminist, you, you basically tossed your kids into daycare and marched off in your big-haired, big-shouldered power suits to be the supermom and get everything done and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all the ideology behind it was pure claptrap and nonsense. Uh, the basic economic reality was uh, simple, uh, which is um, you can't pay the bills for what the female voters want unless female voters go, go to work, right? Because a threefold benefit for convincing women to go into the workforce. Number one, you turn their labor from an untaxed activity being a mom, being a housewife, to a tax activity, being out in the workforce. So lots of income. Uh, also, you know, in the 60s, they ran the welfare state and the warfare state, right? And particularly in America, right? They had a welfare state, plus they had the war in Vietnam, plus they had massive instability, destabilizing programs all over the world. And so if you want to run the warfare state and the welfare state without raising taxes on the men, which would push back against the desires of the women. These are all generalities. You understand lots of exceptions. These are just very big picture views. So don't get all hung up if you don't fit this pattern. I understand. Don't make it all about you. We're talking about big picture stuff. But um, so you had to get women into the workforce so you could tax them. Now, uh, another benefit of that, of course, is that when women put their kids in daycare, then you need a lot more uh, daycares. And daycares you can tax the people who work in daycares, right? So you get double, like two-for-one taxation. Plus, daycares will generally um, give government, like you'd have to subject yourself to government control in order to run a daycare. Usually that meant government unions, which meant more money to leftists. So the fact that leftists promoted women in the workforce was very beneficial to leftist expansion of government power and much more taxes. And the taxes were used not to pay bills, of course, but to use as collateral for borrowing. So it looked like everything was still free to the boomers as a whole. And the third benefit, of course, is that governments establish more and more control over children, right? If you can separate mothers from their babies and have the babies largely raised by the state, then the babies will bond with the state and will be uh, destabilized in their upbringing, right? They will have uh, significant bonding issues, which we'll get into uh, in a second. So this is uh, a lot of... Um, yeah, leftist, uh, socialist, communist infiltration of the media and the um, 
the uh, academia uh, in, in particular. And this made this whole feminism was no longer about giving women choice, but getting them into the workforce. So the government benefited, and uh, women ended up progressively more miserable. Uh, this is the great challenge of this government program called feminism is wonderful for women in that as the goals of feminism, and, and by that I don't mean equality before the law, which was achieved many decades ago, but this sort of manipulation and, and this inf infection of fear and hatred of masculinity that a lot of radical feminists are into, patriarchy and microaggressions, particularly uh, white males, the racism against white males and so on. This uh, has made women progressively more uh, unhappy, uh, which is a, a, you know, decade by decade by decade. Women's um, mental health problems have escalated. Women's happiness has declined. Um, so naturally, of course, women are saying, gosh, I think we got it wrong. Oh, wait, no, just like in Sweden with their policies, they're not admitting fault. So what happened was, as the women go into the workforce, you need a place that's going to raise their kids. And this is done by daycare, right? So just between the 1970s and the 1990s, daycare services grew uh, by 250%. And um, the number of kids who were dumped into daycares, of course, went up by the millions upon millions upon millions. Now, daycare, I, I worked in a daycare from the age of 15 to 17, uh, part-time after school and in the summers. And um, I did a, I think I did a pretty good job. The kids really liked me. And um, again, praising myself. I'm sorry, I'll stop that. <laughs> I'm sure it's kind of annoying. But um, uh, a, a lot of the, there was high turnover, right? Which meant that kids would get, if they liked the teacher, then the teacher would be there, then the teacher would be gone. Because, I mean, for me, it was a great job. Um, I got out of school 15 to 20 minutes early so I could make it to uh, my job. And uh, the pay was seven bucks an hour. I mean, better than I could get. I remember when I worked my first job in the convenience store, I got $2.45 an hour. At the hardware store, I got $2.50 an hour. I'd work Tuesdays and Thursday nights for four hours, so that was 20 bucks, and then I'd work eight hours on a Saturday, and that would be another 20 bucks. So for all, I could 40 bucks uh, a week and then be taxed. And Anyway, so seven bucks an hour was like a godsend as far as that went. Um, and given that at this point, um, my brother and I were without mm, parents. Uh, we, My mother left when I was 15. Anyway, topic for another time. So... Uh, I do have some experience of uh, daycare and its um, effects, the environment, the effects on kids. A lot of trauma in daycare, right? So there's a, a maternal depri deprivation thesis. And, and what it states is that babies re require, like need, desperately need, two years of intimate attention to form the caregiver-child bond that is essential for secure and stable ego formation. Two years. There's a reason why the recommended recommended um, length of breastfeeding is a year and a half because you need that contact. Um, I am immeasurably uh, here it comes. I'm immeasurably grateful to to everyone out there who has given me the opportunity to have this time at home with my daughter to 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 bond to to play uh, to to enjoy each other's company. And and people don't understand. I get parents calling in talking about their children and I said well my daughter's never had a tantrum like she's never had a temper tantrum and she is enormous fun enormously kind uh, enormously strong uh, very funny and a great just great company I I live with the two greatest people in the world I'm incredibly lucky that way I mean I've worked at it but um, 
And I know, I mean, you have to, I, my wife and I tried this. We tried to go and have a game of squash when my daughter was young and we lasted about eight minutes before <laughs> she wanted us, she needed us. And this connection is so important. Uh, it's so important. And we become independent because we were dependent and we are connected. Um, and so this this two-year bond, uh, which is why I am always saying to the people who call into my show, just stay home. <laughs> One of you, stay home with your children. Uh, it's pay me now or pay me later. I mean, you can go off to work and leave your kids in daycare or whatever, uh, and you'll make a couple of bucks and, and you'll be stressed and, and people will tell you, oh, it's fine when it's not. But the reality is um, you're going to get significant blowback in your teenage years and afterwards. And I'm telling you, it's much, much easier and much better to take the time off at the beginning to get that secure bond, to get that connection, uh, to allow for the stable generation and solidification of your child's ego. Because if you don't have time to do it now, how on earth are you going to have time to deal with all the problems that are going to come cascading down the cliff of your teenage years for your kid? I mean, it's... (laughs) Pay me now or pay me later, and the bill later is a lot, lot higher. Now, if this sort of two-year bond requirement for children is disrupted or disturbed, then what happens is that children respond to later stresses in a hostile or aggressive or an antisocial way. Um, I don't know all of the mechanisms. And you can, again, look at the source material below, uh, which I'm pillaging fairly extensively, and you can find out uh, more. And it is dose-dependent, which does help us figure out the cause and effect. So the more time that children spend in non-maternal care during the first, particularly during the first four and a half years of life, the less time they spend in maternal care, the more behavioral problems they develop later on. Now, these are things like, you know, aggressive back-talking, defiance, temper tantrums, uh, not cooperating for no particular sensible reason, um, aggressive behavior, cruelty, uh, destroying toys, uh, trashing objects, getting into like fist fights or punch fights or scratch fights or physical fights of every kind. And kids who spend more time in daycare, their own mothers And their kindergarten teachers rate them as less socially competent, uh, unable to negotiate escalation, aggression, withdrawal, bullying, tantrums, all this kind of stuff. Now, let's try and tease out a little bit of cause and effect. And if this was your experience, then I really sympathize. I myself, and I don't recall this, but I myself, I've heard tales or stories, I think they're true, that my primary caregiver, thank you, my friend, my primary caregiver had such a great relationship with me that she actually named her firstborn son after me later on in life. I was, we just, we had a great bond. And um, a lot of my friends didn't have that same, you know, depressed parents or absent parents or, you know, single moms who um, were working all the time. And it's a mess. So again, I, I had some good luck. I had, I had some good luck. And that has helped a lot. It's helped me a lot overcome some of the challenges that I've talked about before with my childhood as a whole. So maybe, just maybe, it's um, that um, the daycares or preschool centers or whatever you want to call them, I'll just say daycares. Uh, maybe the daycares were just 
just bad, underfunded, um, unclean, uh, underpaid uh, workers and so on. But that's actually not uh, the case, right? When a researcher analyzed some particular data, they found that middle and high-income children were actually among the most affected children of all. Now, if you've got middle and high-income children, we assume that they're going to attend better preschools, right? Um, Because their parents can afford more. But it's not the way it works. The, the richer kids, the kids from richer parents are actually more affected in general, negatively affected by all of this. Um, another study, this is within America, 6,000 preschoolers, there's no correlation at all between school quality and socio-emotional outcomes, right? Like how kids manage and learn and develop their social skills. So it's also not fundamentally related to, this sounds kind of weird, whether your parents are around or not. So it's not specifically whether your parents are there or not. It is whether you have a consistent caregiver over time. So kids who receive what's called non-parental care, you know, like if you've got grandparents or, or a consistent aunt or a nanny or something like that, if you have a consistent caregiver who's not your parent, you don't actually suffer increased behavior problems. So it's not specific to parents. It's a consistent Caregiver. So it's not the absence of parents alone that makes the difference. It is really being enrolled in a daycare. Uh, it is, and it doesn't matter how good the daycare is. There is um, data, and, and it's chilling. I've, I've mentioned this on the show a number of times before. There's data that shows that children who are put, like infants, toddlers, who are put into daycare for 20 hours or more a week have identical symptoms to children who've experienced maternal abandonment, like they just, the mom left or died or just never saw their mom again. You have to remember what time is like when you're a kid. It, it, it's infinity, you know? Like if I say I'll get something in a week, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll get something in a week. You say to a two or three-year-old, you'll get something in a week, you know, in your next life. Maybe like they, they just... Right, So if mommy's gone, if you're a baby and your mom's gone for eight or ten hours, I think deep down you'd just, you'd never come back. It's very stressful. There is a genetic link, it seems, as well, uh, as, as with all of these things. Um, so there's certain genetic markers that uh, coincide with the combination of daycare plus these genetic markers is what causes the problem. There are some kids who go into daycare who don't have these genetic markers, who don't have the same kinds of issues. But again, it's like smoking. Some people will smoke like George Burns, a comedian, smoked, lived to be over 100, and some people will die after 12 cigarettes. I don't know, right? So uh, that is, you don't know ahead of time. And so <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. What's worse, daycare, kids are smoking. So... They, they know some of what's going on around this. So if, if your kids stay home or have sort of these stable caregivers that are around and consistent and reliable, you know, for this 18 to 24-month period after birth, it's so essential. So again, the stress level cortisol. So if your kids are home, then there's like a healthy pattern of cortisol. It sort of rises when you wake up and then it kind of decreases throughout the day and then it really drops off when you're going to sleep and it helps, you know, the absence of it helps you sleep and so on. And that's what happens to kids who have a stable caregiver, like a grandparents, aunt, nanny, mom, whatever. That's like, up, and it sort of goes down over time. But when children attend daycare, 
This all changes. What happens is the cortisol level starts high and then increases during the day in daycare. It increases during the day. Kids in daycare are incredibly stressed. And again, the kids who are home, home-based home care, they're not, they don't have these elevated cortisol levels that drops down, even if their parents are absent. And it's not about whether you nap or when you nap, right? So they've controlled for um, differences in, in napping or resting opportunities. So it's not like you're tired and you didn't get your nap and you're cranky or anything like that. It is a toxic environment for children. And so Why? Why is this happening? Well, in daycare, you may be more, you know, stressed out and upset because you don't have this access to a secure attachment figure. And, you know, if you have like a nanny or a grandparent who's your primary caregiver, then you attach, right? But in a childcare center, I mean, when I was there, there was uh, myself and, and one other woman and we had a class of 25 to 30 kids aged five to 10. I mean, it was bedlam. It was mayhem. Um, I actually, I remember I spent weeks telling the kids the story of the Silmarillion, um, which they really, really enjoyed. Um, and getting their attention wasn't actually that hard, but you just had to really engage with them, you know, like eye contact, focus, uh, and uh, that helped them calm down a lot, particularly the boys. Plus, you know, it's a battle story in many ways. So, in, in childcare centers, you know, the staff are overworked, um, they're underpaid in many ways. I mean, I know that's kind of an economically false notion, but uh, they're underpaid relative to the skill set you need to be a good caregiver for children. Uh, and there's a huge amount of turnover, right? I mean, because the pay is low for adults, they come, they go, they come, they go. And so this is pretty, uh, pretty bad. So the National Institute for Child Health and Humane Development has found that kids who are in full-time daycare are almost three times more likely to show behavioral problems than those cared for by their mothers at home. And again, it's dose-dependent. The more time you spend in daycare, it doesn't matter. Any kind of quality doesn't matter if it's $1,000 a day. The more time you spend in daycare, the more aggressive you become. And this sort of complex peer relationships that go on that that happen kids are not designed to navigate these complex and often dysfunctional other kids around there without a lot of adult supervision that's not what they're designed for and it it's very stressful for kids and um you know kids who are stressed you know, they grow up anxious and aggressive right which is what you see in a lot of these social justice warriors they have anxiety right? they can't sleep because trump got elected and they're very uh, aggressive and uh, this, again, you can see all of this, this daycare generation. And um, again, going back to sort of how we evolved in these sort of hunter-gatherer 25 to 30 people, you actually wouldn't have that many playmates your, your own age. So socialization doesn't mean, you know, interacting with 20 kids all the same age. Socialization as we were evolving, that meant everyone from all ages, infants, grandparents, toddlers, middle-aged people, and so on. And multi-age playgroups, where you may or may not have sort of the careful eye of older people. And that's important. And of course, you'd go out hunting with your dad, right? So this segregation of kids by age is pretty new. It's a relatively new idea. So as... 
kids come out of daycare and go into schools, they're kind of messed up. And what that means is that, you know, electronics got really better, as I mentioned earlier, but peer relationships got more challenging because a lot of kids were really messed up by daycare, which meant they weren't good at negotiating, which meant they'd get really aggressive, which meant that they'd pout, they'd storm off. And it's just like, oh, forget it. Forget it. It's not worth it. I might as well fire up the old PS4 because no kids are around outside. And the kids that are around outside are too difficult to try and play with. So, ah, you know, so as the quality of the electronic entertainment goes up, the capacity to negotiate with your other kids, your own age in your neighborhood goes down. And um, this is not just, you know, relative. This is, they surveyed 12,000 parents recently in 10 countries. And as I mentioned, they found through this survey, the average kid spends less time out of doors now than the average high security prisoner in jail. So in the United Kingdom, nearly three quarters of kids are spending less than an hour a day outside. Amazing. <laughs> My mom actually wouldn't like she wouldn't let us watch tv when she went out now this is back when you could go out and you know we could be young and all of that and i remember my we lived on a second floor apartment building and my brother and i were so hungry for television i remember getting out and crawling like along the window ledge to get to the open window of the room that she'd locked the tv in um i remember watching a boxing match of all things we were just hungry for any kind of entertainment that way the whole whole of england shut down when a bond movie was shown on television but uh, that's how hungry we were for digital uh, entertainment. And that was with like a 10-inch black and white TV that occasionally just did that, um, you know, that uh, jukebox roll that you get in Vegas. And this has been sacrificed in schools, right? So outdoor play in schools in the UK has been cut in half in recent years. And particularly for boys who need to blow off their energy. Uh, it's uh, That's pretty catastrophic. So... As kids became more fearful, anxious, and aggressive as the result of um, daycare, I mean, parents found it tough. Parents find it tough, I think, with kids who are messed up from daycare. It's tough for them because it's kind of stressful for the parents now when their kids go hang out with other kids. Um, my daughter's pretty pretty social. And um, when she meets uh, other kids, uh, so uh, recently uh, we were on vacation, she met a kid, uh, and she loves hunting for lizards. And they went off around half an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, and uh, I never, like, have the slightest concern that someone's going to come back in tears or there's going to be some big problem. I mean, she's she's great with, with that. Um, and it's because she has, because we're older parents, her best friends, uh, hi guys, are um, older uh, than, than she is. And uh, I think that's helped them and her in terms of uh, just being great people all around. But... Um, this, uh, you know, if, if your kids are kind of messed up and aggressive, it's pretty stressful for you to have play dates and, and relationships with other kids because you don't know when the next monster bomb is going to happen and some kid's going to have a meltdown. And uh, so, you know, staying home and having them on electronics, which, again, is part of the cycle, uh, is uh, is a problem. I mean, I remember once uh, uh, seeing um, at a restaurant, seeing uh, a whole gathering of, of parents and kids and uh, the the parents all sat down and the moms all opened up their purses and handed out the electronics and the kids you know actually like put their heads down on the table and were looking at the electronics on their lap this went on for like two hours anyway it's uh it's easy to nag at other parents um and it's a great temptation but uh i'm going to do it anyway so 
at the same time as there's this anxiety of how is my daycare traumatized kid going to interact with other kids, there's this general fear of the neighborhood. Uh, now, this is even though crime rates are going down, there's this fear of uh, the, the letting your kids roam around through the neighborhood. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them that's not discussed is this comes from diversity and multiculturalism. Uh, and again, Robert Putnam, P-U-T-N-A-M. You need to look at bowling alone and some of his other studies. Um, social trust goes down enormously uh, in neighborhoods, even among like if a bunch of different races and cultures and so on. This is why people can't congregate together. It's for the sake of the kids. Because if your kids, if you're in a Greek neighborhood and the kids, the parents are all Greek and they all go to the same Greek Orthodox church and they all have the same values, you kids can roam and you don't have any concerns or, or fears. Um, but if it's a really multi-ethnic, multi-racial neighborhood with lots of different religions and lots of different belief systems and so on, um, you just, you feel nervous because you, everyone does. Everyone does. And it's even within, like if you've got three Greek families in a neighborhood of multi, they each trust each other less, even though they're all Greek. So uh, it's a, it's just one of the prices you've paid for this leftist fantasy of the cultural mosaic leading to all things uh, wise and wonderful. Um, one of the, one of the uh, effects is that uh, kids uh, are kept home. They, they don't go and play and roam in the neighborhoods, uh, uh, even though the neighborhoods are safer, even than when I was a child. Uh, they just, multiculturalism has killed people's sense of trust in their own community. And, uh, you know, we can like it, we can not like it. Um, we can say it's bad or wrong. Nonetheless, it's still a fact. And so for particularly for boys, what happens is the moms and the occasional dad, afraid to let them go out into the neighborhood because social trust has been destroyed, partly by multiculturalism, part, partly by other things. So they stay home. And what happens is they stay home, they sit on couches, uh, they snack too much, and the boys get fat. And when you get fat as a boy, guess what happens? Well, your testosterone goes down uh, in particular as well, after puberty, right? So um, again, if you're growing up without a father and you're overweight because you don't go play outside, well, you have two hits against your testosterone and uh, then you get Europe. So, So in the UK, a 2016 survey, what's the effect of all of this? Well, since 1990... Rates of depression and anxiety among the young have increased by 70%. 70%. The American Counseling Association has reported a, quote, rising tide of personality disorders among millennials because you guys were experimented on against your will by social engineers largely from the left who destroyed your neighborhoods, who destroyed your families, and who destroyed, in many aspects, the natural development that was yours by birthright. It's terrible. In 2014, a survey of 100,000 college students, 53 U.S. campuses, this is by the American College Health Association, 84% of U.S. students feel unable to cope. More than half experience overwhelming anxiety. Overwhelming anxiety. Unable to cope. And, you know, I, I like the snowflake thing, it's not just because you're all so fragile. And I've said this before, and this is part of my big, this is all a big apology as well. You guys were messed up. As kids, you were messed up by others, by people saying to your, I don't know, it's weird to me. Like, I hear all about this, oh, mother is fiercely protective of their young, and mothers and women that love the young, and women are, what the hell did it take? A few stern looks, a few scornful looks from feminists, and women are like, here you go, I'm throwing you to daycare while I go off to work in a customer complaints department, because that's really where my bliss is. Jesus. It's horrible. It's horrible. It is, to me, shocking just how little bond there is. 
just how little bind. I mean, I, I'd rather live under a bridge in a van down by the river on a steady diet of government cheese rather than not spend time with my daughter. I mean, where the hell is this bond? Where is this female grizzly fierce in the protection of their children? Well, you know, the really competent women, they're going to get a job and leaving their children to be raised by strangers at minimum wage. Who the hell ever thought that being a parent was some low-rent job to be done by just about anyone with a pulse who can go from A to B? Come on. I can no more be replaced as a father than some random stranger could replace my wife. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. It's crazy. So this this anxiety, right? And, and, and the reason, again, and I, again, I've been part of this, so I apologize again, but the reason why y'all are being called, you know, these special snowflakes and so on and, and hysterical and the autistic screeching stuff, it's because... It's because your parents and your teachers and your elders, they don't want to look in the mirror and say, well, we put our kids in daycare, which toxicified their psycho-emotional development. We harmed them. We traumatized them for vanity, for money, for bigger houses, right? In the 50s, the houses were like, what, less than half the size, about a third the size they are now? What the hell is the point of a big house filled with traumatized Young adults have a smaller house and healthy children. That, to me, <laughs> would be would be the key. And maybe I'm kind of crazy that way, but that's how it works for me. And I think that's how it should work. It's just amazing to me just how willing everyone was to just conduct this utterly bizarre social experiment of separating mothers from their children. Off you go. Off you go to a daycare. <laughs> I mean, this is why, you know, when people would say to me, well, how, how's your daughter going to get socialized? <laughs> Get a double meaning on that word. Why on earth would I want my daughter to be socialized by being traumatized by the lowest dysfunctional, psychopathic, <laughs> messed up kids uh, in some particular daycare? Or, anyway, you know, it's like saying, well, how, how can you get socialized if you're not incarcerated? Well, you kind of can. It's better. So this... You know, this kind of crippling anxiety, like it's a, it's a big deal for, uh, for young people. Uh, and it's not their fault. I mean, this is how they were raised. They were raised uh, in, in daycares. And then there was this whole idea, and I think this has something to do, like there's an old saying that says, um, women are great at raising toddlers uh, and children, and men are great at raising uh, adults. It's a, it's a big generalization. But uh, I do think that there is some something to think about with regards to that. Um, I think anyone who's got a mom and dad around knows that the moms are overcautious and the dads encourage you to explore boundaries. That uh, Because, you know, the moms grew you in their belly and the moms breastfed you and all that, there's a, a unity there that's beautiful and wonderful and healthy and excellent, that bond. Dads don't have it, which is why they say, yeah, jump from one higher stair, I'm sure you'll be fine. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that that happens, and I think you need that yin and yang in parenting, uh, and in kids' exposure as a whole. Parents, moms are a little bit less able to handle negative feelings on the part of their children, and again, that's perfectly fine when they're young. But I think what's happened is uh, men have been chased out from early childhood education. 
because, you know, there's this weird perception that, you know, if you're a man and you want to teach little kids, you must be a pedophile. And it's like, can you imagine saying that about blacks or, I mean, well, you know, that person is black and the only reason they'd want to, I mean, it's horribly bigoted and the effects are, uh, are, are terrible, you know, for a lot of young boys, right? I mean, you, you don't, I was the only male teaching in the daycare. Um, you don't, you don't see a male authority figure of any kind. Often, if you grow up in a single mom household, daycare and so on, until maybe high school, maybe late junior high school. And so what happens is um, women are a little bit less keen on competition and a little bit less keen on, um, I don't know how to put this exactly, um, a little less keen on, uh, it's okay to feel bad if you're bad at something. And so you get a lot of this, you know, this is a cliche and everyone knows this, you participation medals. Uh, and, you know, everybody gets a trophy and all like there's no winners, no losers, and it's all cooperative and all collaborative and so on. And, you know, girls play collaboratively and boys play competitively and so on. And, and again, all generalizations, lots of exceptions, but I think there's some truth in that, in that there is a lot of anxiety that comes out of the daycare generation. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's your society's fault. It's your elders' fault. They should have studied this, obviously, right? They should have said, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Whoa, Nelly. Before I put my kids into some daycare situation, can you show me the studies where this is really good for them or at least as good as me parenting? And again, what kind of parent would you have to be to say, well, sure, everything I could do can be replaced by some anonymous stranger who's going to cycle in and out for seven bucks an hour? No, 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 no. So, yeah, of course. Of course, your elders, your parents, your teachers, they all should have said, no, no, before we conduct this massive experiment on our children, let's actually find out whether it's safe or not, whether it's good or not. And again, you had the studies with the rats, uh, and the monkeys, right? Uh, and um, the rats and the monkeys who get all their physical needs taken care of but don't actually have a mother. Like they build this wireframe pseudo monkey with like breast milk and all of that. And and uh, so the, they have all their physical needs met but they just don't have that same connection with an actual living, breathing mother. Uh, those monkeys grow up really messed up, really messed up. And these studies have been around for a long time. There should have been, of course, questions about the efficacy of just handing your kids over to strangers to be raised. You're so, your parents should have listened to you. You cried, I bet. You cried and you cried and you cried and you didn't want to go. Who would? You can be home with your mom. A comfortable, familiar environment. A comfortable and familiar person. But no. You were dumped with screaming kids, aggressive kids, strangers, noise, light. It seemed like a new adult every other day. Why? Why? Because your parents wanted a bigger house? Because your mom wanted to feel fulfilled? Why? Why would you have a child to... to Put that child elsewhere. That's like getting married so you can live on different continents. I think, what's the point? So, 
you know, if if this describes your history, and I, I promise I'll look at the comments, like, let me know below whether this makes sense to you. And again, have a look at the source materials and let me know if I've gone astray anywhere. This is obviously very off the cuff. But um, does this match your experience? Do you understand, like, when you look at people who can't handle alternative viewpoints, when you look at this kind of weird splitting thing that goes on where, you know, social justice warriors say that they're all for freedom and then they attack people physically sometimes or want to ban them if they have contrary opinions. Or they say, well, we're really into women's rights, so let's go praise Sharia law. I mean, you understand all of this stuff, so wildly contradictory, but it's not because it's ideologically based. It's not because it's intellectually based. It's not because it's philosophically based. It's because it's about managing anxiety. It's about managing existential angst. It's about managing, in a sense, a lack of identity. If you can be convinced to be empty, or if you can be put in a situation where you grow up empty, you have to have some kind of shape because you have to make some kind of decisions in the world. If you grow up kind of empty, then you will be very tempted. In fact, it almost becomes inevitable that you're going to conform to some exterior shape provided by ideologues. And this is why, you know, at this show, I'm always saying it's not about the conclusions, it's about the methodology, it's not about what you believe, it's about how you think, whether you're willing to think. Subject yourself to reason and evidence, as I repeatedly do, and change course when I get new and better reason and evidence. So for the older generation as well, I would say, I hope you're listening to this, watching this. You messed up. You messed up badly. I mean, there's the obvious stuff, like dysfunctional government systems, dysfunctional schools, massive national debts, unfunded liabilities, crazy out-of-control immigration policies. But you messed up. You handed your kids off to be raised, and it was very bad for them, very traumatic for them, very toxic for them. I know it can be hard if you're a parent, look in the mirror and say, I did something really, really wrong, really bad. I failed. I failed to place my child in a secure, safe, happy and protected environment and my child is suffering because of it. Because all the benefits that you had of going to work and all the vanity, I mean, it's all gone. It's all gone. It's all in the history. It's all been bought and spent and paid for and vanished. Flushed down the tunnel of time. But the challenges among your kids, the trauma, that that remains. And I think... The children were robbed. Many of them. They were robbed. And this sort of acting out of hysteria and aggression that is happening these days is the echo of that emptiness, the echo of that robbery, the theft of stability, of, of ego, of, of reasoning, of negotiation. Robbed. Robbed in daycare, robbed in school. Boys in particular, drugged. They've been robbed so badly. Robbed by being stay-at-home stay kids. Sit on the couch. Robbed by parents surrendering to the anxiety of dangerous neighborhoods. And as a result, putting them in overstructured environments where they don't get enough free-form exercise a lot of times and they don't get enough negotiation. And then kids... As a result, growing up anxious and, and stressed. You know, too much 
cortisol produces neurological damage over time. Stressed, worried. And then you get to the point where, like, university is... It's like, it's like return to the amniotic sac of the early womb years. Or, I mean, you, you can't get a more relaxing environment. You don't have to get up for anything in particular. You've got your own schedule. I remember when I first went to college, I was keen to go. I had to spend a year and a half as a gold pan or a prospector. Yes, that's right. You can take your shot now, those who wait for me to mention it in every show. But I was so keen. Like, I started writing my essays within a week of getting there. Just everybody, <laughs> this woman asked me out and I said, I can't go out, man. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't go out with you. I got to work on my essay. She's like, when's it due? I'm like, a month, but I'm dying to get started. She thought I was totally blowing her off. <laughs> anyway, um, so if you can't handle college, I mean, what are you going to do after? College is, is pretty relaxing. Well, it was when I went and maybe a lot different now, particularly if you're a white male. But society messed up. Badly. And I don't know what the fix is, but I do know this. The first step towards whatever fix is necessary comes from telling the truth about what happened.